Welcome back to Smart Casual. As usual, you're listening to me, Emma, and my co-host, Amy. Hi. It's been it's been a while again. That's our favourite opening. <laughs> it's line, our favourite. Yeah. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. It's been several months. Anyway, moving on. Today we're going to be talking about trends. So you know how you can walk into a shopping centre or browse your favourite online stores and basically just find the exact same thing at every place? Things that I've noticed recently are tie-dye, square necklines, puffy sleeves. It makes you think, right? Like, how did every store end up with such a similar lineup of clothing and trends? To tackle one part of that question, we're interviewing a trend forecaster. Her name is Tully Walter, and she's an in-house trend forecaster for Sports Girl. Previously to that, she was working at the global trend forecasting agency, WGSN. You may have heard of it. Basically, there's a whole industry that's trying to predict what people want to wear, and how they want to shop, and how they want to live... So first you'll be hearing from Tully, and then Amy, I'm going to quiz you on the role of trends in your workplace, because you are a designer for a wholesale fashion company after all. Let's do it. Yeah, let's get spicy. (laughs) So welcome to Smart Casual. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Can I take it back more to the beginning? Um, What did you study at school? How did you get into forecasting? Yeah, so many of the jobs that are happening now and are happening in the future didn't exist when I was studying. And I didn't, when I went into design, I studied a Bachelor of Design, I actually didn't know that there was such a role as trend forecasting. Um, It was always the storytelling behind the design that I loved the most. I loved the responding to the brief. I loved the concept development. Um, And when I graduated I never wanted to sew on another button or or make another pattern. I thought from there, because of my love for the the story um, and the research and the analysis, um, that I wanted to work in fashion media. Um, So I went on to do a master's in journalism and communications. And it was in there that I discovered I was doing a research piece on where do trends come from um, and sort of anchoring it around the media thing that I, I discovered trend forecasting and I, I found out about the agency WGSN and I saw that and I thought, I want to work for them. And then I sort of anchored this whole piece around pretty much trying to you know, get into the field, sort of like uh, brand myself. Um, And I created, it's a little bit cringe and dinky now, but I (laughs) created um, this trend forecasting website out of RMIT where I studied and I was doing a bit of RMIT street style and interviewing, um, you know, makers and that sort of stuff and, you know, trying to harness in and and lens in on that, the innovators and and early adopters um, and kind of branded this piece to be um, around trend forecasting. And um, from there, um, sort of, yeah, branded myself around that. So then how do you go about proving that you can successfully forecast a trend when you go into places and say, I'm a, I'm a trend forecaster? Oh, um, I guess it is about the research. And it, you, if you've got that um, quantitative and, and qualitative data and you try and make a strong enough case that that the trend is there, that's really sort of like arguing your your case. So you don't have to rock up in like 
a full vet malt out yeah. there to be like, <laughs> I have Fine, taste. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you should say that actually, because um, sometimes when when I was at WGSN, um, I'd be reading um, these reports coming from um, our head office in London, and um, you know they'd they'd be um, a two year forecast, and I'd get so inspired by um, its future look, and then I'd reconstruct some kind of outfit and and rock up um, at work the next day and I'd catch myself in the bathroom mirror and think I've taken it too far (laughs) (laughs) Melbourne's not ready for this (laughs) I find that with trends though you know sometimes things come down the runway and you think that's so bizarre like in what world would that work Mm -hmm. and then five years later you get you see it repeated so often that your eye becomes adjusted to it and then you kind of grow to like something yeah Um, it's almost like a desensitization yeah Yeah. Yeah. and then it gets kind of interpreted in in a more wearable look obviously yeah yeah Um, I, I feel like that's just happened with so many things for example chunky sneakers yeah yeah and i i think the power of social media has proliferated um that cycle a lot quicker um and um whether it is from the different accent access points and and viewpoints or whether it's um just i guess uh just the the sheer saturation repeated image Mm -hmm. um yeah i think it is just that just time yeah. No. How would you define trend then in a nutshell? What makes a trend? I guess like if you were to look up the dictionary term of trend, something that is making um, repeat impressions c- sort of came out of obscurity and is, is gaining momentum. And I guess that's like trend forecasting has and, and I guess trends have a direct correlation to what is happening like socially, culturally, politically. The, the trend cycle comes in five stages. Basically, um, the other thing about trends is really they're spread by nothing more um, scientific than people. Um, so have you guys heard of the trend curve? Okay, so it it's a really cool resource, like visually to check out. You can find it online. It's called the Diffusion of Innovation Theory. Um, it does actually date back to the 40s. And what's crazy is the theory and the, like the, the trend cycle itself is based on the uptake of agricultural technology in remote um, farming communities in Iowa. But the, and that's where the, the theory started. But the model still stands up. And again, that notion that trends are picked up and spread um, by just people um, is what it, it's about. Um, mm. So if you think about the start of a trend curve, um, the first stage is the innovators. So the, the curve starts really small. Um, so think about like um, 2% of the population like people often or sit outside the mainstream, um, perhaps even be counterculture. Um, so you think about like Vivian Westwood uh, in the seventies, like creating a, a uniform for like disenfranchised youth, which then later became the punk trend. Um, the innovators of a like a trend um, are what you know create the idea. After this is a area called the early adopters. Um, and so while the innovators 
might be the source of the trend. It's in fact the early adopters who make this trend. So they'll be people that are connected um, or plugged in, uh, the types of people that will have the fingers on the pulse. And so, you know, you, you'll start to like, if you can visualize mm-hmm. the trend curve going up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not really a trend until that second stage. Until the second stage, yeah. It, that's when it becomes the trend. Um, and then from there, it's picked up from the majority. And I guess that's when it starts peaking as a trend. And then it takes us to the next stage um, called the late majority. Um, and this is when it starts to move down the trend cycle. Um, It's where it starts to probably lose a bit of its cultural capital as a trend. Um, So, you know, you think about um, Vermont debuting um, in like 2014 with this sort of androgynous, uh, oversized look, which is um, definitely challenging the ideas of gender and and those norms that, you know, fashion perpetuates. You know, that that's the innovator stage. And now you, you walk into High Street, you know, you jump onto ASOS, walk into Topshop, and we're saturated with puffers and hoodies. And this is the stage in that trend curve where we see the late majority has picked it up Mm -hmm. um the sign that the trend is on its you know way out out. it is (laughs) well the the resting place for the trend that stage um and and that group of consumer that picks it up is called the laggard which is (laughs) kind of um (laughs) yeah an ouch but this is when it's either it signifies that the trend is dead or that basically it's not so much a trend but it's an accepted piece of of culture society mm-hmm. you know for instance like i i think about the white sneaker i, I can't even like when adidas like stan, stan smith, smith. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that like made a real comeback um like i remember the first time i saw someone wearing it it was someone who i like had a total style crush on and yeah I was like, how did you get those shoes like they're so hard to find yeah. right now yeah and then two years later they're just everywhere. everywhere yeah yeah yep. everyone owns it and and now you can can get them at you know discount department stores, yeah. your Kmart's, your big W's. It's a core offering. Um, you know our mums and dads have them. Like it's um no, no longer a trend, and I guess thus completes the trend curve. It's so much more than looking into um you know a magic ball. It's kind of like a, a very formulaic, traceable um, uptake. Yeah. Well, it's funny because it's some trends when they get to the end of that life and it's absolutely everywhere across the mass market, you know, sometimes it feels very tired and then it will disappear the next year. But with something like white sneakers, like you said, that's just become an accepted part of everybody's uniform almost. Yeah. So it's interesting to see some trends just go out the window. Yeah, yeah. And then others just become a part of, I don't know, your daily life. Yeah. I I guess that's the difference between a fad and a trend maybe Hmm. and i guess with trends it's also a lot about time because some things will like i guess in the 80s uh like acid wash jeans and like really like huge shoulder pads were a thing and everyone like i guess through the 90s and 2000s really looked at the 80s stuff as really garish and well we'd never go back to it again but Balmain brought back the huge yeah. shoulders and acid wash is it's coming back now yeah and I guess it time kind of only tells when it comes back again yeah. so we might see things as a fad 
but like who knows in like 20 years time it'll be like really cool again absolutely and and that's such a it's funny that you should say 20 years time because there is you know in terms of fashion theory as well there's um, a phenomenon around the 20 year cycle that things come back so we think about like the 90s trend seems to be really back at the moment and I do wonder if part of that is embedded um, in the sense of nostalgia that it has because it is before the time that we hit this whole chaotic more complicated social media space that we're in Mm -hmm. it was almost like the last um, era of simplicity. On the topic of social media I also feel like that 20-year trend cycle is not something that I've noticed as much because trends seem to just come up constantly. People are constantly bringing up, like, picking and choosing from all these errors. Absolutely. Um, and the trend cycle is just a crazy speed. Well, it is. It's it's turbo speed, isn't it? Because we have, you know, where we stand at the, this like intersection of time, we've never had, one, more access to information, two, overlay that with the fact that um, we've never had more influences as well. So different designers might be, you know, you know, one cohort of designers in London might be drawing from um, the 90s and New York, um, drawing from the 80s, um, and all of these trends are coexisting at this one time. Um, there's like a sort of melting pot of aesthetics and information. Um, in saying that, trend forecasting has become increasingly complicated Um, every year of trend forecasting becomes more fast and complicated and I think you know to your point about um, the variety of information um, it becomes a lot around um, mining the archives and and looking at things that are meaningful to your customer and your target market. When you say uh, trend forecasting has become more complicated as we go further and further into the decade and technology speeds up and stuff. Do you mean that um, is it is it harder to choose, like pick and choose which trends to be honing in on for customers, or is it is it that there is like there is no one definitive uh, source that is like trickling it down. I guess it's not really trickling down anymore. It's all just going coming at coming at you from, from all directions. All directions. Yeah. That's that's such a like powerful visual as well because um, again, and I, I'm sorry I keep bringing up different fashion theory, but I guess it is you know the, the, they're the principles that I guess define this facet of the industry but um you mentioned the phrase trickling down historically the way that fashion influenced and you know 1850s um paris being the centralized source of influence into the rest of the western world um you know following world war ii and when fashion became more decentralized and um i guess more democratic as you know you know things like um youth culture um the punk movement the grunge movement came about 
a different force started to influence trends and influence fashion while it was the trickle down theory so couture houses and um the elite you know um, rich people that could afford fashion they were the ones that influenced um following i guess the changes in technology and um dissemination of information um the youth culture and i guess counterculture movements started to bubble up and so it's like the bubble up versus trickle down theory um and to your point um you know you overlay that with social media you know you're looking at a visual of the internet pretty much you know all these different synapses firing of things that influence taste Mm -hmm. So then in your day-to-day job, what kind of things are you looking at um, to make a decision on what's trending? So I look at everything really, like all, all the usual suspects, runway, street style, what Ariana Grande posted <laughs> on the weekend. But then also being really tuned into um, news and current affairs. Like, I think a really good example of the way that social cultural framework informs um, taste is something like Pantone Colour of the Year. It's, it's classic blue. Um, the choice was described by Pantone as a reassuring presence instilling calm, confidence and connection. And if you think about, you know, the year that we've just had, um, the turbulent political context, um, our environmental crisis, um, all this instability and uncertainty, um, the sense of calm and reassurance is exactly what the consumer is wanting to be wearing or, or having in their home. Um, and so, you know, that correlation to the zeitgeist is really tangible. But some, so it's interesting you bring up Pantone because every year they, when they release that so-called colour of the year, I'm always thinking, how do you come to this conclusion that this exact shade of green or blue or what have you is what is going to define the next year? Like, mm-hmm. is it not just some BS that you could, like, pick a colour and then create a story create a story around it Mm. which is what fashion does as well yeah Yeah. and i guess ultimately it is somewhere in the middle of of that and the fact that they are so tuned in to the consumer the zeitgeist the appetite um what we want to lean into and it's almost giving the people what they need it sounds like it's a mixture of uh, understanding the mood of the moment and the emotion, emotional mood of the moment. Absolutely. In addition to like all of the data that you're, you know, seeing on Instagram and all that stuff. Every day. Absolutely. The emotional side of things um, that is becoming increasingly um, pertinent. You know, we have been through the industrial revolution, the technological revolution. Um, we're in a space now where it is, th- there is the emotional economy and the empathy economy. Um, we want to feel something and we, we are not just going to buy into what commercial is proposed to us. Mm. So when um, when you're forecasting for Sportsco, obviously it's for an Australian market. Yeah. Um, uh, how do you differentiate, I guess, because you are looking at global trends, you're looking at London and Paris and New York and things like that. Um, how do you differentiate what's going to work for the Australian market as opposed to, say, something might be working really well overseas, but maybe it's not going to translate well in Australia and then 
and then um, after that translate to the sports girl customer? Yeah, that's a brilliant question and, and something that I really um, had to learn to, to lens in on. Um, I, I think the most obvious point is climate. Um, we are mm. not only on the counter calendar um, as the northern hem, but we're also um, a lot warmer than, you know, places in Europe. Um, the other thing is, I guess, lifestyle as well. Like Australia does have um, a, quite a unique lifestyle. Um, we we do err on the more casual side of things. We love colour. Um, you know, there's so many variables that, that make the um, Australian palette unique. So um, thinking about um, what shows in in the calendar you look at so i'll often look at um the pre-fall shows the resort shows um and get those trans-seasonal messages on board um looking at um you know what's happening in california you know uh, as opposed to new york um looking increasingly at the asian market as well Mm, as mm -hmm. the diversity of the australian customer um shifts Mm. so um you know looking at other um forces of influence um china korea japan um and what trends are really happening in that space as well when you are looking at all the global trends and like kind of honing in on your customer and picking like cherry picking the trends specifically for the sports girl customer do you ever look at something and really really love it and you know that it's not going to work but try and like slip it into your reports because you're like i really want this to take off in melbourne (laughs) or i really want it to take off for the sports girl customer um that's so funny or you're just like uh, i won't even bother because they're not gonna they're not gonna get it <laughs> yeah. The, yeah the second one <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um it's a like interesting um dynamic um making the um call on personal taste um versus trendability mm. um and it's something that you have to sort of really like I, we talked about um tie-dye before mm. when um and and you know things like neon colors is really coming back and it takes me back to in my lifespan the first iteration of that coming through so um when i was um like formative years um late 2000s um all of that do you guys remember like stevie and um those those fluoro track pants yes yes um, oh my god stevie it it was a brand that was huge in melbourne it was very um i remember those fluoro track pants yes it was the the look it was aspirational um, and, you know, growing up in regional Victoria, um, it was – but it was also sort of coincided with like the whole electro movement and, um, you know, that like clubs and looking back now like boys with acutely spiky hair, um, it was all pretty retrospectively cringe and now seeing that that within the trend cycle is upticking again um, – my palate and personal taste goes oh that (laughs) is a time that I've hidden the photos but knowing that there is a new cohort of consumers and that there is a thirst for this it you know you can't um shy away from it because it's not your personal taste you have to embrace it Mm. um as a service to trend forecasting Mm. (laughs) 
Does every fashion company have an in-house trend forecaster or, or they, are they subscribing to trend forecasts? Like how integral is it to their business? I think most businesses that you could think of do subscribe to trend forecasting services, um, be that WJSN or smaller ones. Um, it is, I guess, the portal to getting that information um, and attributing the meaning to your business. Not so many businesses in Australia do have a trend forecaster in-house. I think it is the more sort of progressive leaning businesses that, you know, know that it is um, quite a um, complex and fast moving. Like That's the thing, the speed and complexity of the consumer has changed. So businesses that want to hone in on that might have a trend forecaster, I guess, Again, that history part, once upon a time, designers, businesses could just dictate what they sort of thought to the masses. And I think in Australia, you know, some businesses had a monopoly on, you know, what that is. Um, Now that there's so many direct-to-consumer brands giving the consumer what they want and the consumer dictating to businesses what they want, um, there is more emphasis on getting it right for the consumer. It it is ultimately um, part an anthropological um, facet of the business as much as it is, um, you know, determining key colours, key shapes. Is there a trend that you can talk about that's in stores currently that you can trace for us from where it started to how it broke to the mainstream? Yeah, I think tie-dye is a really interesting example. Um, First saw it coming through um, at like Stella McCartney. Um, This was sort of mid last year and um, picked up by other um, designers sort of driving into this kind of surf trend. Um, Justin Bieber starts wearing it, Hayley Baldwin. and it does sort of hit that um, commercial space and, and now we've ranged it for, you know, our summer collection now and, you know, it, it's doing well. Um, that was a, That's a hard trend to push as well because people have preconceived opinions on earlier iterations of the trend like it's a very like diy thing to do with your mum. that's it yeah yeah um and so really had to make a, a case for it um but then when it does come to making that case you think about where we stand socially culturally it's the 50th anniversary of woodstock so we're having these conversations around what woodstock meant at that time and it was about um, peace and love and freedom and something that the consumer is resonating with today. Uh, another big um, thing about tie-dye is it kind of leans into um, notions of um, handicraft, even the eco-movement. So it's something that the consumer has a resonance with, um, even if she doesn't know it or he doesn't know it. Um, it it's something that does have that emotional um pull um and so by that little bit of um sort of data and then that little bit of anthropology um it makes the trend work 
That's so interesting. I'm like, I'm not going to look at tie-dye in the same way again. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, re- I'm really attracted to tie-dye at the moment. I just don't know why. Yeah, yeah. Like, you, you don't know why. And I've not, I've not thought about it yeah. like, in terms of like the connotations around what tie-dye means and its history. Yeah, the time is now. Mm. <laughs> Get in while it's hot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. It's uh-huh. been a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. Um, actually, I'll get you to plug your socials if you'd like. Yeah, um, you can find me um, at Tully underscore Vision um, to riff on my name um, <laughs> on Instagram. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So now is the time where I get to ask you, Amy, about designing for fast fashion, essentially. First off, tell me about the company that you work for. So I work for a for a wholesale fashion company and we produce um, six collections a year and each collection will be about like 50, 50 different styles across multiple colorways. We have to work really fast, obviously fast fashion. So basically you're creating a lot of clothing. A lot. It's a huge volume. Yeah. It's a huge volume of clothing. Um, you just don't have enough time to design an original garment. So I just want to ask you what you think it means to design an original garment. That would be a dream and a luxury <laughs> to be able to design an original garment, to be able to start completely from scratch and like sketch something out and give it to my garment technician who's who does the pattern making and specifications of the garment, have her pattern make something or test it and fit it and then do our adjustments and then finally produce something completely, not in a vacuum, but I guess we get to test out an idea rather than look at what's already in the market and selling and then creating an iteration of that for our customer. So then what does design look like for you on a practical day-to-day basis? Design looks like looking at what Zara is doing, looking at what Sports Girl is doing, looking at what Seed is doing and uh, looking at the best sellers that they're putting out and then doing some sort of version that kind of has a bit of our own spin on it choosing colors that are on trend and already out there in the market nothing too nothing too wild so how much like original trend research are you doing in-house like aside from looking at what other stores are doing how much research do you get to do like being out in the world and like looking at what people are wearing and you know um just absorbing all these other influences not I don't get to do or well, I do do a bit of research I guess but in in a sense that I I look at it for fun for my for my own fun and then we we kind of just hone in on the things that um we know have worked really well for us in the past buying into things that we know will sell for our customer so I guess you're under the constraints of trying to only make what you really know will sell there's yeah. no room to try yeah. something new. Yeah, there's not really much room to try new things or things that haven't been proven in the past just because there's so much so much money and resources on the line to um, to make the a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, they pref- like a sure bet, even if it's safe and boring, <laughs> is better than taking the risk. 
Right, which is, I guess that's why, you know, I can walk down the street and see so many similar items in stores because they're, I'd hazard a guess that this, like what you do at your company isn't a one-off thing, that Mm. many designers are under the same pressures at big commercial fashion companies to only make what they know will sell. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a feedback loop almost if all the designers are looking at what's selling well at Zara, then Mm. everyone's producing the same things each season, very broadly speaking. Yeah, it's like a big hall of mirrors. Like everyone's kind of looking at each other and doing a similar thing, only just slightly, slightly, slightly different. And I think that happens every, like at all levels of fashion, not not just the chain store level, but even in the higher end. Mm. Like when we were talking about tie-dye before with Tully, heaps of high-end designers are doing tie-dye. Heaps of middle-tier designers are doing it. And then Mm. heaps of people at chain store level are doing it. Yeah. Um, But then I think the interesting part of a trend like that is also comes down to production speed. Mm. Because Mm -hmm. perhaps the designer at the high end who is responsible for like making that a trend again has been copied so mercilessly by someone who's able to, you know, get that style into stores like within a couple of weeks before the original designer has been able to release it in their stores. Mm. So you kind of get this um, everybody releasing the similar item at the same time. at the same time. Mm. Yeah. So I know you've told me before that um, in the design team, you'll have people who actually go out to Europe where they'll buy interesting pieces from say Zara or usually fast fashion and then come back to Melbourne um, and like retrace those patterns and then essentially recreate what they've bought from Zara Mm. in a way that suits your customer. Yeah. Which when you told me that, I was like, oh my God, a copy, because obviously Zara is a copy of something. other people. It's a copy of a copy of a copy. Yeah. Maybe that's original. It's so bizarre when I, when I, um realized that that's how we did things I was like well it like kind of blew my mind um that what we were making was like yeah a copy of a copy of a copy and like Zara Zara produced so much stuff the volume of um styles that they produce is like pretty nuts and they have so many styles within their store like they have their boho kind of stuff and then mm. their city woman mm. like working urban chick <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they really hit up all these different yeah, little all these different customers. Yeah. So like I think it it's it just is a buyers or designers like mecca. They'll just you can just go in and then find your customer ah. and then just pick those things out and then so we'll we'll go to Zara or I'll look at like Nasty Gal. I look at Nasty wow. Gal a lot. Does that still operate? I thought Yeah. Yeah. Is, is that no longer owned by Sophia Amoruso? No. Okay. I don't at least I don't think so. I think she stepped away yeah. from it to do her girl boss. Yes, thing. yes. Like, uh, yeah. That's why I thought it was dead, but uh, yeah. no it's not. No, I think someone bought it and so they yeah. still operate and I think they're on sale a lot. Yep. So <laughs> we look at it we look at Nasty Gal a lot because they're really cheap and we'll pick out things shapes that will work for our customer but then obviously the nasty gala always in like gross really horrible fabrics really horrible garish prints so we'll take those shapes put them into slightly nicer fabrics and then um more mature colors and then rehash them into wow our label so can you tell me about why you have to 
go through this process of rehashing other people's designs rather than creating something else from scratch? It's taking something that's proven to have sold and then putting it back into the market and knowing that it'll sell but then also because the rate of our production and the the schedule of our drops is so short we do six collections a year so that's two months every collection there's just not enough time to get to sit down and draw stuff and then patent make it and test it and see if it looks good on a body so being able to just go to a chain store and then buy something where someone's already done all that work and then quickly change a few colors or change a sleeve or something it's so much easier and um the factories in china are just so Mm. good at what they do and so fast it just makes the whole process so much faster which is what the industry like kind of dictates and we shop at Zara and Nasty Girl because they're cheaper. I'd love to shop for samples at a, a really high-end designer store. I was just about can't. to say that because yeah. I feel like a lot of the time when you hear about copycat cases, it's high-end designers saying, oh, this like Urban Outfitters or whoever, or, you know, whatever chain store copied my item. I mean, I'm sure in a lot of cases in Australia at the chain store level, the things that we consider copies are actually not copied from the original designer, but copied from a different store who may have down the line copied from somewhere else that designer. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's much more common that um, places will copy from other places at their same level Mm. and it doesn't excuse it, Mm -hmm. but it's like, they probably just copied it from someone else and then unknowingly, it's from a, yeah it's accidentally <laughs> like air quotes accidentally yeah copied it from a high end designer yeah this is, kind of sounds like an episode about copycatting but to a wider degree like you know the reason why copying happens is because the trend cycle is really so fast right now mm. i think copycatting has always happened yeah but the pressure for it to proliferate is because we're going through rapid trend cycles and trying mm. to meet consumer demands, which change very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the internet and Instagram and influencers being such a huge force in the market, um, we are cycling through trends so much faster. Like, I think people get fatigue of something a lot faster nowadays. And so to keep up with that, we are having to jump onto those trends and produce things and get them out as quickly as possible before the trend is over. Obviously, that has put a huge pressure on not only design teams and buying teams, but then the um, production teams, like all everyone that's mm-hmm. um, working in the factories, they're going to have, they're having to just do stuff s- so much faster mm-hmm. um, and get things out so much quicker. At the end of the day, like how many different garments could can there be in the world? Have we made everything? Have already? we made ev- yeah. like have we made everything? Quite um, possibly. Oh yeah, did you read that article about that Guardian article about how we've reached peak linen? I just love the phrase peak linen. Peak linen, and it's so accurate. Yeah, <laughs> I think. That article just made me laugh. I think that person must have had a really slow day and just been like, I need to talk about how much linen is everywhere. But I think it's so true, though. I think about it all the time when I browse different sites. 
maybe two years ago, linen was just the domain of indie designers in Melbourne. Mm. And, and then, now Glassons, like, yeah, exclusively yes. makes things in linen. And, like, it's not it's not the premium linen, but... It still looks it very still similar. Looks, yeah. Can we just talk about how, like, annoying it is? You know, people say linen looks great crinkled. I really don't think so. Yeah, I always, like, I'll see brands make stuff in linen and they'll do a photo shoot and they won't press it, they won't steam it. And I'm like, that just seems so wrong. It just really bothers me. Especially if it's, like, a line that is there from having folded it, yeah, being like folded being, in a box. Yeah. It rather than really, a natural crease line. Yeah, it really grinds me <laughs> i'm just like oh it would have taken you two seconds to steam that out and it would have looked so much nicer i'm really yeah i'm i'm really interested to see where the emotional economy that tali was talking about takes a big name brands like sports girl or like maybe not even zara because they're probably too big to tap into that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um but like seed or country road actually country road i've noticed are doing um their campaigns and their imagery are i notice that they are tapping into much more emotional resonance because they shoot like their campaigns on like a huge estate with all these different models like it's like a family of it's very dolce and gabbana yeah like yeah a family of models and it's like kind of depicting a modern diverse family where you know you've got the mum and the dad but maybe you've also got a stepmom and then you've also got like a adopted sister interracial yes yes interracial as well (laughs) and that that obviously is obviously a very conscious choice mm, to kind of mm. reflect a new Australia. That's very interesting. Which is really yeah. interesting. I think they had like, I think they had like an Indigenous model as well, mm-hmm. um, which I was like, hello. Well, like <laughs> you know, I guess I guess well done for doing that, but also I hate that this is a selling point. Mm-hmm. That, but no, I mean it's hundred percent a good thing if it's lasting and. Like you said, it's if it's really, truly reflecting what Australian society looks like mm. and has looked like for some time now. Like, it's not like we've just suddenly become very diverse, diverse. overnight. Like, yeah. this has been a long time coming. Yeah. But it's interesting to see heritage brands like Country Road take that more public step. And it's probably because we've been having diversity conversations for the last freaking I don't know, mm, forever, millennium, yeah. and now they finally feel safe enough to do that publicly and, you know, to not get backlash. Do you remember that incident when David Jones used, I don't know if it was a Dr. Ketch, but they had her in one of their catalogs and then one of the Facebook comments was like, this is not Australia, like, why do you have a black <gasps> model in here? Oh, my God. Um so I, I can imagine, that, and, and you know, and that was only like a year or two ago. So I can imagine like in their minds, like to have done this 20 years ago would have seemed a lot riskier. Mm-hmm. And that's just the weird, crazy <laughs> like place that you're in when you're trying to appeal to middle Australia. Mm. Um, it's recently come to my attention that there's another podcast called Smart Casual. <gasps> And they are not us, obviously. Um, <laughs> not that they're trying to be. It's fine. Um, but what do they talk about? Finances? No, they talk about fashion. Really? Yeah. <gasps> it's another fashion podcast called Smart Casual. And I think we have just been bumped down in terms of algorithm and search 
because we don't release nearly as many episodes as them. <laughs> so, I mean, if you are one of the people who listen to this podcast and somewhat enjoy it, please give us some kind of rating. Um, you can follow us on Instagram. This is the first time ever that I've plugged our Instagram because I hate plugging shit. <laughs> um, it's Smart Casual Podcast. Like, share and subscribe. Yay. Yeah. Yeah.